Thank you for uh, the Bible reading and thanks for um, the, um, the opportunity to be here with you and to share. As um, Robin um, said, there are interesting things in our backgrounds, as I'm sure there are in yours, but she um, made a comment about white dog kayaking. I don't know if you remember that and whether you were puzzled as to what that meant. I, I probably should disclose uh, the meaning, uh, but I'll do it in a way that may surprise you. Who remembers uh, Winston Churchill? Okay, he was the um, Prime Minister of England during the Second World War, a remarkable bloke. Did you realise that um, Churchill suffered a deep and debilitating depression? Um, quite a few of you are nodding. Some of you may not have realised that. In fact, you probably like me, might have been thinking, strike, well, there's a bloke who carried the world upon his shoulders, figuratively and literally, really, in a very, very difficult time. How could he have debilitating depression? But he did. And he had a name uh, for his depression. Do you know what it was called? Yeah, he called it his black dog. And we have Beyond Blue and various other organisations. But there's another international organisation, which is very similar, at least in its purposes and its work, to beyond blue as we have it in Australia, and it's called the Black Dog Institute. Um, I share some things in common with uh, Winston Churchill. Uh, not of all, all the high and mighty stuff, um, not at all, but I do share with him the, uh, the struggle of dealing with depression myself. And, um, and I've often thought about uh, the, way, the, the metaphor that he used, a black dog, to describe uh, this thing that was always nipping at his heels and um, uh, trying to overwhelm him and to, to cut him down and to stop him from doing what, what he needed to do. Um, I don't know if you've um, been one who suffered from depression or whether you've had uh, friends or family uh, who have. Um, probably most of us fit into their somewhere I suspect but it is difficult um, and sometimes um, for those who are struggling with depression it feels like there's no hope it feels like you know, you're in this great deep dark pit and you can't get out it's a, sort of a place of hopelessness uh, maybe there are other ways that people describe it well, I um, suffered my first bout of depression um, in the early 2000, uh, I think 2002 probably, and, um, and it was tough. And I thought there was no hope. But over time, I discovered that there is hope. Um, there is the possibility of finding your way again. There is... Uh, the way of actually curbing that black dog that seems to be persistently overwhelming and just pulling you down. And um, as a result of that, um, as I was recovering from, uh, from that uh, episode of depression, my GP um, said to me, Bob, you need to go paddling. Have you ever had that uh, suggestion from your GP? You know, he was a pretty creative bloke, but um, actually he was a great guy. He was a believer, Christian. But um, 
one of the problems when you're struggling with depression, you often, for a range of reasons, put on weight, and I certainly had done that. And so he said, well, you need to do something to get some exercise. And I'd uh, spoiled my knees. I got bone-on-bone knees from uh, early years playing footy and cricket and all that kind of stuff. So running and even walking wasn't really uh, a comfortable option for me. And that's why I said, well, why don't you go paddling? Um, you use your arms and your torso and your legs can more or less relax. And so I did. I bought a little tub from Anaconda. That's probably the best way I can describe it. Um, and I started paddling around Lilydale Lake, which was close to where we lived at the time. And I quite enjoyed it. But I suffered from a, a terrible spiritual dilemma. Uh, it's, uh, it's the sin of uh, coveting because I saw bigger and better and faster boats. Well, uh, what ha- happened uh, was that uh, I found, together with Dos, she'd come down paddling with us. We, we uh, used to spend evenings together paddling. Around. A bit hard to hold hands, a bit unstable doing that, but it was something we could do. It was restful, relaxing, and it was good exercise. And as I always do, I was following religiously my GP's um, uh, prescription at least in that regard. Now, it wasn't long before I discovered, even though I was enjoying this uh, new way of, of sort of beginning to deal with the, uh, the depression and so on and some of the um, uh, collateral damage that goes with it, uh, I soon discovered that if you're serious about paddling, you're going to capsize. It's inevitable. Um, has anyone ever been in a kayak? I'm not thinking so much of a sit-on, but a sit-in, where you go over upside down, you do a half a roll, I call it, 180 degrees, (laughs) you're upside down um, with limited amounts of air, a fair amount of noise going on in your head like, uh, I'm going to (laughs) die, and so on. Um, Capsize in a kayak can be frightening. Um, And it can be terminal. Uh, if the truth be known. But it doesn't have to be. And one of the things that I've learned from both kayaking and also from the process of dealing with uh, my black dog, and I should say that the reason I call uh, my little ministry white dog kayaking is that I'm playing on that black dog stuff. Uh, Yes, the black dog is uh, about and, uh, and, and, and being a proper pain for many people. But it doesn't have to stay. And the opposite of that, white, black and white, Uh, is the way I try to say to people there's a way to calm the black dog storms that you may be battling with. You with me? Okay, so capsize panic. Capsize is inevitable, but it's also recoverable. um, If you want to quote that, you'll have to quote me. I came up with that. It's probably the only thing that I've ever come up with, but I think it's true, not just for kayaking, but for life. Uh, as well. Um, And as in sea kayaking, so too in doing church as you go, which is, by the way, my little paraphrase for the Great Commission. Um, How does it go? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Uh, Therefore go and make disciples. Oh, I got it wrong. The word in Greek is porothentis and it's not correctly translated go. It's more correctly translated as you go, and you might think, well, you're playing around with semantics a bit there, but no, I'm not actually. 
Often in the church we think we're going to go out and win people for Christ and we've got to sort of set up a whole special program to go and do it. We go out and then we retreat back. I'm overstating it. But actually what Jesus said was wherever you are, whatever you're doing, 24-7, as you go, make disciples. That's why Paul's work in the prison as a prisoner had significant weight and, um, and value. A number of his letters, the prison epistles, were written from prison. So, as in sea kayaking, so too in doing church as you go. And I want to pick up a a passage um, that talks about what I've described here as beyond 180 degree capsize to 360 faithfulness recovery. That's a bit of a mouthful. What I'm saying there is that we can find ourselves up Side down, and not just in kayaking in life. Have you ever felt, you don't have to answer me, rhetorical question, have you ever felt as though life has absolutely, absolutely gone upside down and you're totally stuffed and you don't know how you're going to get out of it and you're without hope? Well, I suspect that most of us have, more than once. And I would want to suggest that um, if you haven't, you will. And if you have, it'll probably happen again. <laughs> That's the good news. But it's the reality. We live in a world uh, that's in a bit of a mess and it's not easy being a follower of Jesus for a whole range of reasons and certainly in our country in the last five or six years there have been issues that have brought that out a lot more uh, abruptly perhaps than um, in, in more recent history. James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the author of the epistle or called his name, James, um, wrote a letter to um, Jewish Christians that weren't part of one particular local congregation, but in fact were people in many little home and house churches outside of Palestine. They were scattered, and they were scattered because of the persecution and so on that was uh, coming upon the church in um, um, AD 50, 60 and 70. And he was writing to them because, and and we find this actually in a lot of places, if you read Hebrews, it's the same basic setting there. He was writing to them because in the difficulties and in the struggles, if you like, in the capsize of life, when things were going belly up very quickly, the temptation was and is for people like us living right here in Chelsea, in uh, Victoria, as in other parts of the world. The temptation is to give up and to roll over, so to speak, and just follow the world's wisdom. Now, James was speaking to people who were battling with that. And for myself, I know that that's something that I struggle with regularly and I suspect it's probably true for you. How do we hold true? How do we choose faithfulness, which I think is the title that is appropriate for this particular message in the series. How do I choose not to roll over, not to be uh, to stay upside down when circumstances or decisions or actions that I may have made that weren't particularly smart see me upside down, out of breath, and not too far away from... Um, reaching the pearly gates, perhaps. What do I do? Well, 
he spoke to uh, people just like that, not to one congregation, to many, uh, which is another reason why I think it's valuable and and helpful for for us today. And he gave a whole lot of uh, very practical things to help people. But in the passage that was read for us and uh, that I'm going to work through from James chapter 4, I think he provides a fantastic and a realistic, uh, a sobering picture of how we not only choose faithfulness, but sometimes when we've missed the boat, when we've fallen over, uh, how we get back on to the boat, how we ride ourselves from that capsize, how we can re-enter into uh, faithfulness um, in God's sight. So I want to take you through a few things. First of all, what were the causes of the capsize for the, um, for the people that, to whom uh, James was speaking? Well, the first, um, the first few uh, verses, the first five verses, in fact, of the passage talk about the causes for the problems of this capsize amongst the people that James was speaking to. And he says, first of all, I've just summarised it in the first three verses, believers are at odds with one another. Now, I know that couldn't be possibly a problem here. You'd all be very harmonious and everyone gets on well. I've just been unlucky. The last 12 churches I've worked in, we've had some problems with unity. But that's probably not the case here. But James says, you know, there are things that are the wrong side up in terms of the way we can operate sometimes. And he he mentions things like coveting, wanting something that someone else has, um, of deceitful, deceitful scheming to try and get something from somebody else, um, of murderous intent and action, of jealousy, of power abuse, of neglecting to ask God for his help and his uh, wisdom in difficult circumstances, and even sometimes when we do ask God, asking with the wrong motives. It's an interesting sort of set of of issues uh, that I think fit under this problem that I've described there as believers at odds with one another. Is that the way the church is meant to be? Is that the way God's people are meant to be operating? Is that the sign... Uh, pointing to Christ uh, that uh, we should be uh, exhibiting in our lives? I think the answer clearly is no. In fact, when we care for one another, when we truly love one another, then it's by that, John says, that people will know that we are disciples and they will see hope. Talk on that uh, a bit more, but I... Well, you can play with that in your mind as you think about other passages that speak of that. Well, that was the first part of the problem. The second part was what I've described here as adultery judgment. And um, in the uh, fourth verse, uh, James goes on and says, you adulterers. So he's sort of summing up the behaviour of this other stuff that had been going on. Don't you realise that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Now, just think about that for a moment. Friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Now, that's a fairly heavy kind of a statement, isn't it? I mean, there's no grey stuff in there. It's very clearly black and white. Uh, And then he goes on, I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Uh, And then it goes on in verse 5, do you think that scriptures have no meaning? 
they say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Now that's actually a verse that uh, for the commentators and the scholars has been a rather difficult one and different translations uh, render it slightly differently. But it's like this. God gave his very best. We've just been celebrating that through communion. So that not because of our good behaviour but because of the work Christ did on the cross we could be forgiven and cleansed and made new. So that if anyone be in Christ the old is passed away, behold the new has come. It's the salvation, it's the miracle of salvation. It cost Jesus everything. So when we, his people, who have received that um, special grace stuff up, then he gets a little bit narky, I'd want to suggest. Um, God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. Now, I, I should make the point that James is not speaking to heathen. He's speaking to Jewish Christians, believers. And he's saying that in that context... This can be sometimes the problem and he's bringing a very strong uh, warning towards us. Now, we can elaborate more but those are the things that um, uh, provide the context for the next next little bit. In other words, (laughs) often we act and behave and think and do in ways that don't reflect Christ's lordship in our lives. And you can throw me out as a heretic if you think I'm wrong but I think I'm right. Uh, on that one. So what's the next thing? Well, we come to what I think is probably the sobering, perhaps even pivotal statement in this little passage um, where um, in verse 6 we read these words. And he gives grace generously. That sounds nice. It's a pleasant sort of a start. We think of amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And we might even think of the bloke who wrote it, Newton, who was a slave trader and thought that he could never be forgiven, but discovered he could and wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. Well, and he gives, that is God gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There are two parts there, aren't there? God opposes the proud. Now, if you do a little... Um, search you know, via a concordance through the Bible, you'll, you'll find that that statement is echoed again and again. If you uh, look in Proverbs and uh, Psalms and in Romans and Corinthians, throughout the Bible, you'll find that this issue of pride uh, and God being opposed to it is consistently stated. God opposes the proud. Now, I'm not quite sure how you what you think of when you think of the word oppose. But it's not like, oh, well, I'll, I'll just ignore it. That's not opposing. It's, um, it's not, oh, well, I'll give you a second go. It's not that at all. God opposes, stands against pride. But the other side, he gives grace to the humble. And it's that statement seems to me, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, that we see two absolutely critical truths 
that suggests that we had better not muck around with God because <laughs> he just doesn't sit by benignly and so far away that he's not worried. We will find ourselves um, capsized because we've walked away from God. There, there are consequences and we will feel them. But he gives grace. And what does grace mean? That's the usual phrase that we uh, define grace. God's riches in Christ Jesus. Another phrase would be undeserved favour, where we receive from God something that we don't deserve. In fact, we deserve the opposite. But grace is given to the humble. So what does that actually mean? How do we um, work out what being humble... uh, I'd like to put in a synonym... Faithful, I choose faithfulness, being a part of our series. What does it mean to be humble? What does it mean to make humble choices? Well, James is a very practical fellow and he sets out and he mentions three things. And uh, just as a little aside, let me tell you how I was able to share this with my sea kiting community. I, I used to be the president of the Victorian Sea Kiting Club and we would paddled down at Ricketts Point on a Saturday morning. We'd go out at 6 o'clock in the morning when it was dark and we'd be out for a couple of hours and so on. And at the end of it, after paddling maybe 15 kilometres or so, we would do some practice uh, of different skills. And the thing that I used to enjoy doing was the Eskimo rolling. You go over and you come back up again. Um, On this particular occasion, I was doing that uh, without thinking of too much else. And when I came up, all the guys around me were saying, what have you done to your kayak? The kayakers' hulls of kayaks are sort of almost sacred. You know, scratches are carefully dealt with and all blemishes are fixed and so on. And they said, what have you done to the hull of, their, of your boat? Because when I was upside down, they saw the, the hull. And I said, I don't, I don't know, what have I done? And then I realised. I'd uh, spoken at a youth service uh, a few days before and as a novel way of working with the young people, I'd stuck my five-and-a-half-metre kayak up to the roof, had it tied up there, and I used the hull as a whiteboard. <laughs> and I thought I'd used non-permanent <laughs> markers. <laughs> and I hadn't. So I had my sermon outline on the bottom of the hull uh, and these guys saw it and uh, they said, and so I had to say a little bit sheepishly, well, actually, that was my sermon outline from last week. Now, most of these guys aren't believers. What do you think happened next? Well, I was worried with what I thought would happen next, that they'd jeer and carry on and give me a hard time. But they didn't. They said, well, so what does it mean, Bob? And I said, well, let me tell you. If you're going to be humble, you need to submit to God. You need to put yourself under his lordship and not try to usurp his lordship. To submit means to do that. Uh, Second thing, you need to resist the devil. And there's a little promise that goes with, with it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, that's good news. Um... And the devil can come in different ways, subtle ways and all the rest of it. My first real encounter with that, at least that I can remember, was as a young Christian living in Papua New Guinea when I took 
a group of students from the Bible College where I was working on a trip to a place called Tambor up in the uh, Southern Highlands, which in those days was a, a very remote area. It only re- very recently, probably in the, in the, in the ten years that, uh, before we were there, had been opened up to the Gospel. And we're up there and uh, I took the students up and, and we, we played basketball in the morning, which was interesting because it was a very wet day, it was a mud court, and I was the only white skin who turned black very quickly <laughs> because of the mud. It was a lot of fun. In the afternoon, we had a, uh, a market uh, sort of crusade, evangelistic uh, market outreach uh, to people there. And the guy who spoke, uh, a, a guy from... Bougainville, whose skin was jet black, his name is Ezekiel, Obed, and he spoke on this passage. And he spoke about resisting the devil and the promise and he will flee from you. And uh, being a young Christian at the time, I didn't really understand. I hadn't come across this before. But I, I took this in. And that night, um, it was very dark. There were no lights in that place. You know, we, we have a lot of evening light uh, because of all of the lights that we have in a, a city. But up there there were no lights and it was pitch black. And I remember walking from where I I had been over to the house where my wife and I were staying. She was about 15 months pregnant, you know, quite large. Um, And uh, and I was on my way over. And in the middle of it I had this overwhelming sense of fear and dread. And it's not something that's, you know, I don't go looking for, for devils under bushes, if you know what I mean. It was totally unexpected, but it was totally overwhelming. And it was frightening. And I remembered what Ezekiel had said. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so at that point I simply did that. I said, in the name of Jesus, I stand against this and I resist you and I command you to go because that's what the scriptures say. And immediately there was a sense of peace and quiet and safety. Now, people might say, oh, that was all, you know, a psychological little muddle. But it wasn't for me, not at all. And there are different ways that we resist the devil. It can come in all sorts of different ways. When people are talking about rubbish things and then sort of being with them and not speaking up, there can be all sorts of things. We need to resist the devil and command him to leave. We have that power because we are in Christ, because his spirit lives within us. So that's the second thing. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and then another promise and he will draw near to you. This is perhaps one of the most comforting things that I I, I personally get from this passage. Um, My GP when I was in, I went to university in Papua New Guinea um, just before independence, so in the early 1970s, and the GP, who happened to be a, a, a Christian as well, had this little notice on his door read uh, read this way um, if you feel far away from God guess who's moved <laughs> some of you have heard that before but it's true it, it, by implication it's saying it's not God it's us we've turned our back on him and what's being said here through James is when you've done that when you've turned your back on God when you've gone your own way It's not then a case of saying, oh no, I'm lost and God's a way off. It's a case of saying, I need to turn back to God. And the wonderful thing, this is the way I picture it in my mind, as soon as I turn, he's right there in front of me, like, oh. You know, God doesn't just 
leaves out, uh, you know, to, to wither all on our own. He is seeking after us. He's calling us to come back to him. And all we need to do is change direction, to turn back. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the uh, fourth thing that was on my kayak, it's not actually described by this word uh, in the passage. I've used the word repent. But if you have a look um, at, um, at what James actually says uh, in verse 7, uh, humble yourselves before the Lord, resist the devil, come close to God and so on. Wash your hands, you sinners. When you wash your hands, what are you doing? You're getting rid of external impurities, aren't you? And sometimes there are things that we do on the outside that are getting in the way. And so he starts off, wash your hands. Something to think about. But he goes further, purify your hearts. What's that talking about? It's stuff on the inside that maybe other people aren't even aware of, they can't see. But it's there. And it's compromised in terms of what God wants. Um, Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Remember one of the the causes uh, of the problem that I mentioned at the very beginning? It was this whole thing of being friends with the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Not because you've been caught out, but because you know that what you've done has grieved God. Let there be sorrow, deep grief, sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Now those words in my mind speak of the essential um, foundation of this act of repentance. Um, Often with children I, I do a little game if you're game, you might like to even try it with me. Bring your right hand up to your face like that with your thumb pointing out to your right. You don't have to if you don't want to, but if you want to, you know, you've got to be in it if you're going to enjoy it. Okay. All right, okay, so you got that. Now, with your left hand, being careful you don't sideswipe the person on your left, bring your other hand across so that it's facing like that. It's this way, not that way. Oh, I'm going to give you a concession because you've got a bandage on your wrist. <laughs> all right, now we're almost there. We're almost there. Now, see this thumb up here? It's a bit untidy, isn't it? So let's drop it down. Okay? That is a picture of how we learn to do things, to go a particular way. And we learn them, both consciously and unconsciously. It's a part of the way we grow. But the problem is, if we go the wrong way, we're in serious bother. And so, what God calls us to do when we repent is to turn, it's to change direction like that. I'll just backslid. I'm going to count to three. You know what I've asked you to, what I did. I want you to try and do it with me. With me? So after three, you're just going to go like that. Stay that way though. Don't do it, don't do it yet. With me? Take a few deep breaths. Pray for the person next to you. One, two, Three. Now, I wish you could see what I can see. (laughs) Did anyone get it right? Good, you're honest. Did anyone get a little bit sort of, you know, most of us? You see, when we change direction from something that we have been 
that's been established as the way we do things, even when it's going the wrong direction. To change is not an easy thing. It's a serious thing. And it takes all of those things, washing, purifying, grief, mourning, turning our laughter to mourning and so on. But did you notice something else? And again, this is just a little game. I don't think this is particularly, uh, you know, a canonical sort of divine uh, moment. But I've, I've noticed myself when I do this slowly with kids that in order to get to there, you've got to go like this. What's that? It's letting go, isn't it? You've got to let go and change your direction. Well, there you go. That's my kid's story for the day. Um, those are the choices that we need to make in order to enjoy what uh, James described in verse 6. Um, grace given to the humble. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That was on the bottom of a boat. Now, I should just point out that um, nobody walked out. I was not slain, either in the spirit or in anger. (laughs) All the guys listened. And on the way back, one of the guys came up to me and said, "Uh, Bob, would you pray for me? Because his wife was dying. But he wasn't going. And from that time on, I haven't been doing that particular paddle for some years because we live further out, but I did it for probably four or five years. And almost invariably, not every time, but almost every time, uh, when we got out into the thing, the guys would say, now, Bob, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And so I'd say, well... And then I would start to unpack my sermon, but not preaching it to them. I'd say, now, look, this is what I've got in my mind, and I'm trying to think of some analogies from sea kayaking. Tell me what you think. So I was actually inviting them into the process of exegeting and then applying my message. Well, that's something we've done for many years and I've married some of them. I've been, you know, officiated. (laughs) I've I've buried some of them. I've literally, uh, people who have died, I've counselled people. I've been um, given that amazing privilege of being invited into some of the deep things in people's lives. Um, And not only because of that, but partly because of that. So submit, resist, draw near, repent. There's the sermon outline. Now you might think that's good, okay, I can remember that. But actually it's much, much more important that we don't just have a nice little sort of four-point ditty that we can recite. But we actually realise that that's the key to finding God's grace. And it's only possible when we choose humility over pride. God opposes that, but he gives grace to the humble. And then the last thing that I notice in verse 10, is sort of a summary thing. James uh, was a teacher in many ways. Um, and he had that very helpful um, way of dealing with things by saying after he'd gone through the detail, coming back and giving a one-liner that sort of summed everything up. And so he said these things, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Does that sound like a reasonable summary of those four points? 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And there's a couple of things I'd like to point out about that. First is, is that humbling ourselves before the Lord is all of those four things before. Submit, resist, draw near, repent. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And then his response, he will lift you up out of the pit. So for people like me who have battled depression and have felt hopeless without any way of getting out, there's a a promise, an encouragement, a a hope uh, there that comes from God. He will lift you up. Um, It can be be, um, translated uh, as exalted or, or put up into a sort of a, you know, a high position. And at first I thought, no, that's, that doesn't sort of ring true. But actually it is true, not because we are good, it's because of what Christ has done in us. And when we repent, when we turn from and turn to him, when we choose faithfulness, the result is that all of his graces, all of his purposes, all of his strength, all of his joy, all of all that he wants for us, is there again. And that is special. And that's why the greatest evangelistic tool that we have is not our words, it's our lives. When people see within us the miracle of God doing his thing. And, you know, we know one another. So that when something (laughs) remarkable happens like that, it's like they're not bunging it on. I mean, that's amazing. That is so different. That's what happened to the early church in Acts 2. Um, people saw these Christians and they were impressed. And uh, um, in Peter's sermon it says that as a result of seeing that, over 3,000 people came to faith. Amazing, isn't it? So there you go. Capsized causes, a sober commentary, God opposes the proud, humility choices, Submit, resist, draw near. I'm going to have to start over at the beginning. Repent. Thank you. (laughs) And then this final summary. Now, let me finish with another illustration from my um, obsession with sea kayaking. Uh, Re-establishing disciple faithfulness. Re-establishing. Um, in kayaking there are three types of rescues that we can perform for somebody who's capsized. The first one, interestingly, the sea kayaking community call the hand of God rescue. <laughs> it's not because they're believers. It's, just, it's because it's a situation where the person being rescued is either unconscious or so totally disabled that they can't even help. And the way we do it, uh, if we have somebody like that, I've had to do this on occasion, we get up to their boat, we reach over and we rip the boat up to get them head above water. Hand of God rescue. I reckon that's, for me at least, when I came to faith uh, well over 45 years ago, I reckon that's what God did for me in my capsize at that point. There was this hand of God rescue because I couldn't do anything. Well, that's the first one. The second one is what we call an assisted rescue and that's where a number of people get their boats around the person who's capsized and they help to get the person back into their boat. And it's a cooperative thing. The person who's being rescued 
actually is able to uh, participate and uh, be involved in the rescue. I reckon that's not unlike the way it is for many of us in the earlier years of our discipleship growth where we learn to help one another. Uh, And it's not that we're always rescuing somebody else. Sometimes we're needing to be rescued. But we learn to be able to do it together. The the third self-rescue type um, is what we call the self-rescue. And there are different kinds of this one. The one that is most obvious is the one that I'm doing there in that photo. Uh, And it's called the Eskimo roll, where you learn to actually get yourself up not because you're bigger and better, but because you've matured and you've learned and you're able to deal with those capsizes when they come. And that's what those of us who find ourselves in leadership roles, whether it's in a formal way, you know, an official position on the leadership team, or whether it's because we have an influence and God attracts people to us and we have a ministry. It doesn't really matter. It's, that's the kind of thing that we need. One of the problems for people who are mature in Christ, is that it's very hard to stuff up because people are not expecting that of us. We're supposed to be perfect and sorted out. But the truth is, we aren't. Uh, I've had, I can see those kinds of rescues, the metaphorical sense, in my life in a whole range of different ways. Um, The self-rescue one, I discovered in real practice, in a really serious paddle. When I was attempting with a couple of others to paddle from Tasmania back across uh, the Bass Strait. Um, And I'm a diabetic as well as a depressive. (laughs) Um, I had a serious problem with a high per, which means my blood levels were very high. won't go into all the details. But about a third of the way across Bank Strait, probably some of the most difficult and dangerous waters uh, certainly in our part of the world, but I would think probably rates pretty highly with anywhere else because of the incredible currents and so on. I uh, had this hyper. I started vomiting. I got hit by a very big wave. The weather was really bad. We shouldn't have been out there, in fact. And I got capsized. Fortunately, I knew how to roll up, and I did, but I was still vomiting. And uh, two of my friends ended up having to tow me back to a little island called Swan Island, uh, by that time I was hypothermic, <laughs> had the most uncomfortable night in a tent that I've ever had, but could easily have, have died. So I, I learned, and even though so I'm, I'm a reasonably competent paddler, but I learned that we can put ourselves in situations where what's normally a, uh, you know, we can get up and get going quite happily, uh, sometimes we can't. And that's true in life as well. And churches, I've noticed, that grow, I mean, with a, with a true integrity, with a, with, with, where you see God at work in their lives. Churches where people understand that capsize is inevitable, but it's also recoverable. And they've learnt, using that three-point thing from our sea kayaking situation, they've learnt that sometimes... They just have to call out to God, help. <laughs> Remember Peter who got out of the boat to go to Jesus walking in the water? That was pretty brave. But then he noticed the wind and the waves and he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank. Remember? But he had a really good prayer. 
Just a one-worder. Help! <laughs> and the scriptures say immediately God grabbed him. We need that from time to time. It doesn't matter whether we're young believers or mature believers. And we need to be ready to, to call. And we need the assisted rescues and we need to learn how to manage ourselves. It's part of choosing faithfulness and we have to work at it. So, final question. Which rescue type might you need today? I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up. I'm not even going to ask you to say anything either now or afterwards to me. But God's Spirit, who actively works within us, sees how things are really going and he knows whether we're upside down. Uh, and he often will prompt us, come on, be truthful. Own up to your own vulnerability and your struggles and ask for help. Um, and uh, I want to suggest that that's not something that just a few of us need to think about. I want to suggest that it's something that all of us need to think about. And if we not only think about it, but actually act upon us on it, and uh, a humble and gentle spirit, another thing that Jesus talked about, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm humble and gentle and you'll find rest for your souls. By the way, a wonderful signpost for non-believers to Christ. Rest for my soul in the middle of turmoil and tragedy. Then we'll have a fellowship that's real. Not perfect, real. Honest and open. And people who may not say it openly, but who inside know they desperately need it, will be drawn into our fellowship, into our company, so that we can be the body of Christ the way God meant us to be. Not the people that James was talking about at the beginning, who were looking for self-interest and all the rest of it, but a people truly who choose faithfulness to Christ. Well, I'm hungry, I'm going. See ya. <laughs> Maybe uh, you'd like to um, pray with me. Thank you, Father, for your revelation that you have given to us so that we might have um, a reflection of your mind and your will and your life and your character and therefore your purposes in us and through us, through the Scriptures. Thank you for the portion that we've thought about today. Thank you too, Father, that um, not only do we have your blueprint for living in the Bible, but we have your spirit living within us. And I pray, Lord, that for each of us, in whatever way, to whatever degree or measure that is needed, that uh, each of us might open our hearts and our minds uh, to you, and to your will in our lives, um, in the areas that, that you see we need. And may it be, Lord, that we will choose well and know your amazing grace as a result and be the people that you have always intended us to be as your ambassadors into this needy world. This is our prayer together, Lord, for each of us 
individually and for us together. In Jesus' name. Amen.